1: Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. Um, Welcome back to another episode of Anne Security for All. And if we have any new listeners, welcome. Um, We're glad you're here today. I actually got back late last night from San Diego, and it was uh, brutally cold there, according to the people that live in San Diego. I think it was like a low of 50 at night. And um, it's 20 here, so um, it's just a little humorous that my Uber driver was like, I had to go buy a jacket. I don't even own a jacket. So it was very beautiful, if you ask me. So San Diego was amazing. We had our annual cybersecurity event there, and we had amazing speakers, sponsors, attendees. Our keynote speaker was uh, the CISO from the city of San Diego, and one of his former – Uh, allies from the FBI. So we had a packed house. We have been back on the road for a little over a year. And the event that we had this week was like pre-COVID events. It was like Back to normal. We do stream all of our events for so for all of our uh, listeners out there. Just want to remind you, you can catch any of our events around the country. Um, just go to futureconevents.com or find me on LinkedIn, and you can. Um, you don't have to be there in person. Every event we always have a couple hundred people streaming in. We are getting ready to go to Columbus, and then we are going to wrap up our final show in Atlanta, and we have an amazing group of speakers out in both of those shows. So I hope everyone's ready for Thanksgiving. It's hard to believe we are here. The year has flown so fast. The holidays have arrived. When I was walking through the airport yesterday, because I did have a layover, all the um, Christmas trees are up. It definitely uh, put me in the holiday vibes and um, a little pressure that I better start figuring out shopping and all that fun stuff. But I'm excited today about my guest and our topic today. We're going to discuss the cybersecurity skills shortage and adapting to the post-COVID market. And, you know, it's not only in cybersecurity. I had an interesting, um, something interesting that I viewed while I was out in San Diego. When we got out there, there was a huge um, veterans conference uh, for veterans in business, and actually, I wish that I would have got there early. I would have loved to attend that. Being I was in the Navy, there was just it would it looked like a really fun event. But after that event, all there was probably a hundred to two hundred and fifty people that went to the Hilton bar, and um, the bar closed at nine o'clock. They were just getting in there at eight thirty. And all those people hung out there probably until 11, but the bar was closed, they were not serving drinks, and I thought, that is just crazy. All that money, all those paying customers that wanted to pay, and there was no one to be found to be the bartender at the Hilton. And that's really the world we're in today, is the shortage, Uh, we see short staff everywhere, and it's just the world we live in now. So today it will be a super interesting topic because we're going to talk about the cybersecurity shortage um, that we are seeing. Today I have Thomas Krantz. He's a cybersecurity consultant, a senior security and technology leader and author with 30 years of experience in the global cybersecurity sector. So we have a lot to talk about today. So welcome to the show, Thomas.
2: Hello. Hello. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it.
1: Well, thank you. And um, we did a little pre-show talking, but not too much. So where are you? Where do you reside? And we all hear that accent. Are you here in the U.S. or?
2: (laughs) So I like to confuse everybody. So I I have Kranz. It's a German name. I have a very obvious English accent. I actually have Latvian citizenship and I live in Italy. I live up in the mountains, just northwest of Genoa in northern Italy. So nice and confusing. If everyone's got any sort of behavioral algorithms to try and track the sort of person I am, they're they're off to a rocky start straight away.
1: Wait, you're saying you are in Italy right now?
2: Yes. Yes, a very cold, very cold Italy.
1: (laughs) So what part of Italy are you in? I'm just on the
2: border of Piemonte and Liguria, so if you look at the map and you've got sort of Milan and Turin and Genoa forming a triangle, I'm kind of down the bottom of that, up in the Italian Apennine
1: Mountains. Uh, oh, so. beautiful. My, um, my nice. daughter, her senior year of college was the first year of right when COVID happened, and they were in Italy. So um, they were there for about a month, and they had to come home. After oh. much resistance, they had to come home, and they were uh, very sad. I was very sad because I was had was planning to go out there, you know, and come back home with her. But we're hoping to try to redo that trip maybe this summer. So very oh, very.
2: I very, very anxious. recommend it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That it seems like right now everyone's going to Italy, so I'm very jealous. So <laughs> that that's amazing. So now tell us what you do there and how. Um, how you got in the cybersecurity yeah. industry and why you're passionate about this topic.
2: So I, I started out in cybersecurity in the early 80s, actually. The the UK had a government drive to educate students around this emerging field of computing. I got involved in a home computer. It was called the BBC Micro. It was uh, sponsored and created by the uh, national broadcast of the BBC. It's actually built by Acorn. And my dad brought that home. He was a teacher. He brought it home. He had a modem, basically a big manual. It did nothing. You had to teach yourself how to do it. And that that taught me how to get into computers, how to write my own code, how to work out how they work. Then also, because there was a modem, it meant that I got into bulletin boards and dialing into systems and getting access to systems I shouldn't have got access to. And that that sort of inquisitiveness about trying to understand how computers work and how to build complex connected systems, but also how to secure them from people like me. That's kind of stuck with me through the years. So doing it over over 30 years now. I've I've worked, run my own consultancy, I've worked with big name consultancies, I've worked for government departments, I've worked for disruptive startups, I've worked in the gambling industry. I'm currently working in the cryptocurrency industry as well, which is a fun place to be at the moment. It is the the nice epicenter of disruption, and new ways of looking at finance, and very complicated, very uh, involved attacks. So it's keeping me interested. Part of uh, uh, my my drive through all of that as well has been growing teams, and either building teams for clients when I was consulting, or building teams within a business and kind of growing areas of cybersecurity, and and really finding people who, who are interested by the technology and by the challenge, and just just want to solve problems and break things and understand how it works. So, hence, hence my interest in the the ongoing cybersecurity skill shortage and the claims around it, and and trying to fix that. Really working with clients and people across the industry to to solve that and to bring more people into the industry as well.
1: Yeah, it definitely. Seems like we can't keep up with um, the jobs that are out there uh, a couple of uh just welcome to the show um um irvine i don't want to mess up his name is it uh Valsqua? Va- you can try it you want to try it thomas i think he was just at my san diego event if but i could be wrong i don't want to mess up his last name and then md uh uh, uh mammon hassan hassan Thanks for being here, guys. You guys are giving me some tough names today, but I, I think Irvine Irvin was in San Diego. So thanks, guys, for um, joining the show today. Anyone out there, we'd love to have you participate. We might talk about some things happening um, in the Twitter Twitter world and uh, how they're going to handle uh, their, their situation over there. And is that going to be a model of... You know is he going to have a model of what's what how we get out of the mess we're in not the mess we're in but how we change things and i mean elon musk has done a lot of things what are your thoughts on what's yeah. going on with his taking over of twitter
2: so it's it's been an interesting one because in many ways elon has delivered a masterclass in how to be a bad manager and a bad leader um, he he gave his staff an ultimatum earlier on this week to essentially uh, accept very very long hours, very diff- difficult working conditions, or to leave. And a whole bunch of people just turned and go, Yeah, okay, we'll leave them. Um, it's it's these these old mindsets of. Uh, insecure leaders who who don't really fully understand the company culture and don't really understand what drives people and motivates them they're still focused on the next quarter's numbers and they're not really thinking about people and, and why are people working and why are people there and what's the culture of the organization as well and one of the consistent things i've seen through the years is where people have failed to recruit teams, failed to grow a company. It's because they don't understand the culture of the people who work there, and it's 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 interesting to see that, particularly in fields, you know, the the the, the first teams to leave Twitter were the compliance, uh, governance, and security teams, uh, and it makes sense because those people have. Those, those teams at Twitter have experience of doing those things at scale uh, and, and at a scale that you normally wouldn't see outside of a large global financial services institution. You know, constant attacks, high degree of uh, end users and customers, uh, lots of on-premises equipment as well. It's a fairly classic sort of infrastructure for a global organization. So these people have, have incredible amounts of scale and talent. We already saw uh, Twitter getting rid of much... Their CISO earlier on in the year. Again, a hugely hugely talented person within the cybersecurity industry. And he was forced out by the team at Twitter, um, sacked and shown the door. And and Warning Bell started there. You know, this is just like, okay, this is a company that doesn't really understand or value security people. That never ends well. And seeing uh, so far, I've I've seen around 20% of the people that I've noticed who were in the security team have already got new jobs, and that's in the space of a week, a week and a half. So, if 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 you've got security skills, it's definitely a buyer's market out there at the moment. Um, but equally, there's 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 as I say there's there's organisations like this where people are, are shooting themselves in the foot. They've, they've got good security talent. They've got good people. And they're not treating them in a, in, a, in a way that means that they want to stay. And they're kind of damaging the culture and, and the reason why people want to work there.
1: And, you know, I definitely think that, you know, Twitter is an exception to the case because I do have um, a lot of CISOs that have become friends and have... You know, we, we do these virtual bourbon happy hours and we get a lot of CISOs together that are chatting just about what's going on, you know, and, and they their whatever business they're in. And I am hearing that most of the CISOs are not doing this, this ridiculous, you know, if you don't work these long hours, see you later. I mean, that is crazy to me that he would set the precedence of coming in there and saying, if you don't work these long hours. You know, pack your bags and go. So, um, so I definitely think that is the not the not the standard thing that we're seeing because cybersecurity is so important and it is so. You know, we talk about that at our events all the time. Um, you know, the culture is so important just because mm. because of the risk of a breach. And if you don't, if you don't have a happy team and you don't have people that care, how are they going to protect the organization?
2: yes yes exactly and it's it's something i'm talking with my own team at the moment you know it's it's the odds are stacked against us and they always will be you know we have to be effective we have to make no mistakes we have to be on top of it you have to defeat all the attacks 100% of the time whereas attackers just need to be successful once they just need to get through once and that's it um and and Having a team as, as well as a management team who understand the fact that because of that, everybody is going to get hacked. It doesn't matter how good you are, it doesn't matter how big you are, someone is always going to make a, a, a mistake or they're going to breach your organization in some way. And then what matters is how good are your team and do they understand what they're doing enough to quickly identify, contain, and then, then uh, resolve that security breach. And this is, this is, I think, an area where culture becomes really, really important because it's quite demoralizing to face up to, oh, look, we've we've done the best that we could, and someone still broke in, and now everyone's shouting at us. And you have to have a very good culture and a good team to push through that and say, right, okay, regardless of that, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to fix it. Here's how we're going to deal with it.
1: We had um, a couple of weeks ago, we were... We had an event. I won't say what city it is because I don't want to get my keynote speaker mad at me. But um, it was it was kind of a laughable moment. But um, somebody had a question at the end and they said, well, what do you do if you have a team and there is a bad culture? And he, as a joke, said, fire them all and start all over. You know, <laughs> And um, <laughs> you kind of had to laugh out loud on that one. But... What do you do if you have a bad culture? I mean, that, that's a tough situation if you, you know, have a team and, you know, how, how do you fix that culture? I know it's by the leader first. And then, and unfortunately, that leader probably has the CEO of the company on him. So um, that I've heard numerous things of lots of CISOs doing, you know, making things fun and not punishing for mistakes rewarding for you know pen testing and you know just doing things like that what are your what are your thoughts about that
2: it's it's an interesting one because culture culture is always a top-down thing you know your 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 leadership team your ceo your executive team have to embody and live the culture and it's it's been painfully obvious over the years and i'm sure people watching this would have had the same experience where you see people who talk about their culture, but don't actually embody it do not actually live it you know it's here's here's our corporate values. you need to go and live those values we're going to go and do our own thing, so it can be quite difficult i, I think one of the advantages of having uh, security representation at executive level is obviously the 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 usual stuff you know you're you're getting the executive team aware about security. security is front and center when you're doing strategic planning across the business that's all great. But it also means you've got a security leader then who is empowered to essentially carve out culture uh, for their own team. And one of the one of the issues people have when they try and hire security people is to think about the role of security as being the same as any other technology role, like an IT person or a developer. And and it's it's not. It's a very very different environment. Like we say, it's it's high stress. It's long hours. When you make a mistake. company has a breach and everyone knows about it so it's you know encouraging people to think about failure as a good thing a learning opportunity something that we all do you know that that is very very important i think to instill in the culture itself um i think as well there's 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 reasons why people are a bad fit for culture sometimes you know their their expectations are not met in terms of the working environment sometimes it's it's not the company they want to work in sometimes they have personal issues sometimes there are people issues inside the organization as well i, I i've seen especially around smaller companies getting better at talking and getting down to root cause analysis and again within security this is what we do root cause analysis so if we can apply that to a security issue we should be able to apply that to our colleagues and people in our teams and say right what's what's the real cause here it's it's very rare that someone gets out of bed first thing in the morning says you know what i'm going to go into work and i'm going to be horrible to my colleagues and i'm going to have a bad attitude and i'm going to do a deliberately sloppy job you know there's always an underlying reason behind that and it's been very rare in my experience over the years, we've come across a, a true problem employee where those issues can't be fixed. It, it happens. And unfortunately, sometimes you've got to sit down with someone and say, look, this is not working for the reason of us. For these reasons, we we need to let you go. But I would always say that that should be the last resort. And if if we if if we look at why people get into security and why people want to pursue a career in it, you know all the, 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 the fun stuff that we get involved in, like big conferences, DEF CON, breaking things, coming up with new tools, new gadgets, new ways of thinking about problems, keeping that front and center. Yes, we all got to write reports. Yes, we all got to build spreadsheets. Yes, we all got to put together acres of documentation for people. But that shouldn't be the complete sphere of the job, that shouldn't be everything that people do and reminding people and getting people involved in the fun side of things is is a huge way of keeping people not necessarily motivated but just in, in a good space um, thinking about their job but also thinking about why they're doing it. Burnout is is a big problem in cybersecurity. it's a relentlessly stressful job um it, it can get too much especially if you're understaffed or if, as always if you're under budget uh, i'm sure people listening to this will have their own budget ways that they can talk about as well keeping a...
1: no go ahead go ahead I, Sorry, I, was,
2: I was just gonna say keeping keeping people involved like that is a really really good way of, of um keeping them motivated. I mean, an organization I worked at a few years ago, the entire cybersecurity consulting function went off to Black Hat and DEF CON in Vegas. Uh, it was paid for by the company. Um, yes, it was a learning experience. You know, people were expected to go to talks and then give summaries to the team because those are huge conferences. You can't attend everything. But it was also a good, fun way for people to to spend some time with each other, just Get rid of the work stress, get really involved in the fun side of hacking uh, and to enjoy some time out just playing around, breaking stuff, getting to meet people in the industry, meeting old friends, that sort of thing. So things, things like that, invigorating people's enthusiasm for the role and taking them out of the stress of the workplace is a really effective way of managing it.
1: Yeah, it's it's really nice. You know, our events obviously are not a RSA or DEFCON or a Black Hat, but they are one day events, and you know we'll get a couple hundred people there. And it's nice that the culture of those teams allow for the teams, because not the whole teams they can Because we get lots of huge, you know, enterprise companies that are sending their security team. Unfortunately, the whole security team can't come, but it is as busy as they are. It's really amazing that the CISOs are allowing the teams to attend our events and the CISOs are coming out as well. So, um, and that's a wonderful, like you said, that's the fun part of the being in security, just like any industry, because there's always going to be trade shows for um, any industry that you're in. But kind of going back to, you know, because there's such a high need for talent, how do you think we're going to achieve? Um, It's not like, you know, the majority of students are going to school for cybersecurity, um, you know. But I do think I've seen people get their degree and they figure out there's no money and, you know, whatever degree they got in. I, I, what's the cybersecurity thing? Let, let me check that out because there definitely is, you know, the potential to, you know, earn a very good living in the cybersecurity industry. So, how do you? Um, what's your vision for um, attracting people to get into the industry?
2: So, I've I've had huge success taking a completely different approach, essentially. So, I've I, I myself have. Been quite frustrated seeing job adverts that consistently say you must have a degree, uh, you must have these certifications. Um, You know, if you're going to work in this industry, you must have prior experience in this industry. It's, It's 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 putting too many barriers in the way. And hands down, some of the best people I've worked with in cybersecurity not only didn't have degrees but they got thrown out of school for hacking the school computers um some of the best people i work with they've got criminal records for being caught hacking um a a a lot of that that sort of traditional way of we we have an hr team we have an in-house recruiting team we have hiring managers they come up with a job spec That job spec doesn't Normally, have any sort of relevance to the actual job security people will be doing because none of the people involved in writing the job spec actually know about security. They're not putting down this is this is what you need to do and this is what we're looking for. There's there's always these corporate templates that so, okay to, to work here you must have a, a a degree and it must be a degree of this type. We don't care if it's a cybersecurity degree. We just care that you've got a degree, and you immediately. Yeah, wiping out a huge talent pool of people. I gave a talk at a conference uh, earlier on this year in New York and uh, hardly anybody in, in one of the sessions actually had a degree and yet they were all incredibly talented, incredibly skilled cybersecurity people and the majority of them were looking for roles. Now, there's, there's an incredible talent pool out there that companies are sabotaging their own efforts to hire because they're not thinking about do we need skills or do we need someone who fits the template that's been put together by a team that has nothing to do with actually doing the role? So I would say definitely the, uh, uh, approaching that completely differently and, and throwing out all of those traditional barriers. And along with that comes location as well. I've worked remotely now for five years. Um, yes, there's a high degree of travel involved, but if, if, if COVID has taught us anything, it's that Yes, people don't like to wear masks, but also people don't need to physically be in the office when they're doing a technology role and absolutely not when they're doing a security role. I worked on a, a project at the height of COVID, and the team was spread across most of Europe and East and West Coast USA. And it was, it was an excellent team. We managed to do some some really good work, really interesting work with really good camaraderie within the team. We got really well. It just, COVID has shown that remote working actually works. And I'm, I'm as we're coming out of COVID, I'm seeing companies fall back into that approach of saying, OK, for this role, you must be based within commuting distance of this major city. And again, just, just like with mandating a degree, you've immediately wiped out a huge amount of the talent pool. And people who are applying for jobs and looking for jobs know this as well. Yeah, I'm in I'm a mountain top of Italy. I'm enjoying the lifestyle. If I see a job that says you must be in the office Monday to Friday, there's, there's got to be a very big carrot to go along with that stick of having to commute into the office because the job can be done perfectly well, fully remotely. And in many ways, that gives people we, – we, we spoke about culture earlier on giving people the trust and the ability to work from home actually drives a very very good culture you know, there's been lots of lots of talk in, in the press in general about how companies are, are missing the office culture but in many ways that's kind of an artificial thing you know people are, are always on their phones chatting to their friends we're an online, uh, community within security we're, we're an online civilization there right we all have phones we've all got internet connectivity constantly we're always chatting to people having the ability to hire people and build a culture that is about flexibility supporting your team we go back to the things i mentioned earlier on about it being a difficult stressful job will immediately have taken huge strides to address that because you're allowing people to work flexibility, because you're encouraging them to work where they feel comfortable, because you focused on results and output as opposed to presenteeism and faces in the office, and again, going back to to Elon and his fun with Twitter, you know, driving a mandate that says right, all remote work stops, and immediately a whole bunch of people quit, and in many cases, those were technologists who were vital to the running of the company. And and it's absolutely right that they should walk away from, from an edict like that because they don't need to be in the office and they've not been in the office for years and they've proven that they are trustworthy and that they can do the job well. And organizations that are not focusing on results and instead of focusing on the method of doing it. Security people and hackers never do things the same way as anyone else does. Now, our whole mindset is about how do we pull this apart? How do we break it? How do we do something different? So imposing that traditional structure of you must be at the office between these hours, you must be at the office in between these days, not only is going to exclude remote workers, but it's actually going to put a lot of people off as well. They're going to be sitting there and saying, why should i have to be present in an office to do a job that i've proven over the last 2 3 years of a pandemic i can do perfectly well remotely
1: well do you feel though that um going back to culture because i just i was thinking of a couple of friends of mine they work for lidos who i think lidos is well they're they're global and they're here in st louis and you know um she's like well She just does her job. She doesn't really know anyone at Lido's because when she started there, it started, you know, during the pandemic and her boyfriend happens to work there, too. They actually met, you know, when they were in an office and then started dating and then COVID happened and they both worked there, but they work remotely. But do you think that we're missing something there, though, because that office, you know, camaraderie is gone and... You are now in a, um, I mean, you're now at home by yourself and is it hard to stay motivated when um, you're home alone? I mean, eight hours is a long time to stay motivated.
2: I I would say that's one of the advantages of not being in an office. You know, getting in at nine o'clock in the morning and then having eight hours of sitting in a chair in an office with a bunch of other people, trying to remain motivated with all the distractions that tri- typically go on in an office. I would say that's 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 quite a hard ask. Um, and I would also say, within the guise of, of within the focus of cybersecurity. The attackers are not working nine to five. The attackers are not working office hours. And yes, we have follow the Sun security teams. And yes, we've got the security security operation centers. But certainly for smaller organizations who don't have that sort of setup, it can be very, very difficult to match up these are office hours with this is actually what's happening in the world. Excuse me. Sorry dealing with the cold at the moment it's not not going particularly well
1: no worries um i i'll give you a second so you can take a drink or do what you have to do but and we love seeing your dog behind you what a nice dog we haven't heard a, a sound from your dog so um so when you compare because you know i know nothing about italy i only know you know my experience through my daughter being there but do you see a difference you know in like north america and you know the the region that you live in are you seeing differences of culture you know um from one country to another
2: that's uh, it's a very interesting question so I, I one of the things i've observed since moving to italy a, a few years ago and then having to work across all of europe is that it's I was talking with a friend of mine in the U.S. about this actually last week where I was saying that I, I can get in a car and I can drive three hours in any direction and I'll be in three different countries. If I get in a car and drive for 10 hours, I, I can traverse a big chunk of Europe and, you know, I, I can be in four or five different countries if I, if I drive particularly badly. I mean, Italy, that's what we do. Um and he was laughing and saying, "Oh, look! You know, if you're in California or Texas and you drive for ten hours, you're still in California or Texas. It's <laughs> yeah. a, a bit." Um, and and I think in many ways that there is a a a, a people in Europe have been used to travelling and and moving with that, that ease um, ease of of getting places, and obviously, you know. With the Schengen zone and passport free travel within the EU, that becomes very, very easy. And with low-cost high-speed train as well, that becomes very easy as well. But certainly dealing with European clients, there's always an expectation that do we really need to meet face-to-face for this? Because it means getting a bunch of people from different areas in Europe and going somewhere. And where should that be? Should it be the main office? Should it be a consulting office? Should it be a branch office? It's in many ways the, the, the COVID restrictions have been quite good for that because it's it's people have been able to talk and share and, and, and continue sharing their cultures and, and laughing about things in the face of some fairly terrible things going on, especially in, in northern Italy in the early stages as well. I think as well that because the population is less less concentrated on the cities in Europe. I mean, yes, we we've, we've got big cities, but you know, the the ones near me are are not large compared to London or New York and we've got European countries who've got a fraction of the population of say London. Um, it's it's a bit mad. And so because of that uh, and especially with house prices rising and the cost of living rising as well, there there has certainly been through covid a, a move for people to say why are we living in this city you know we've we've, we've had lockdown we've been stuck here uh, we, we we can't go for a walk can't afford to live here why are we paying for these utilities um and, and even to some extent in the us i was talking to a friend uh, who lives in new york um and when the lockdown started, uh, she was saying it was it was terrible to see all these people packing up their furniture and basically leaving New York to go back and live with their families who were out in the countryside or away from the big city. A large number of those people haven't returned because, again, why why go back to the expense of living in a big city and the expense of commuting and the expense of having to be in the office if you've been able to live somewhere that's a bit more comfortable and a bit more affordable, if you've been able to be around friends and family somewhere without the pressure of going to work every day, why, why go back into that? And especially as we see prices rising as well, people are looking at the expense of it as well uh, and saying, do I, do I really need to go here? Do I really need to do this? Is it not easier for me to just stay where I've been for the last few years in lockdown and carry on working?
1: Yeah, you know, we definitely, we've seen that as a company, you know, traveling all over um, the United States this past year, for instance, Chicago. I mean, I've been in this industry putting on cybersecurity events for 25 years, and Chicago has been one of the, it's it just always has been super fun. We're always downtown. It's always a packed event. It wasn't the same this year. We went back to oh. Chicago downtown, and it was a very small event. We didn't get the turnout that we hadn't expected, and I was, like, so dumbfounded, like, what happened? And then as we started talking to people, everybody's moved out to the suburbs. Nobody wants to come and commute downtown. Nobody wants to pay for the parking downtown. No one wants to sit in the traffic. So so now next year, we'll have our event out in the suburbs same thing with toronto i heard that about toronto Mm. you know toronto downtown everybody's moved like away they're out in the countryside so we used to do a Toronto event and we took that off the map because it, even if we decide to go to Toronto and you go in the city, the city doesn't have the same kind of revenue that it used to have. So everything is five times more expensive to even and, rent or stay or what, what have you. So we certainly have been seeing that at the cities. Now, my daughter does live in New York and New York it's still pretty packed and it's just very outrageous. I think everybody came back to New York. So
2: I was going to say I was, I was in New York a few weeks ago, uh, and then I was in London and, um, I was shocked at how busy they were, uh, especially after I'd, I'd been traveling through Milan and I've been traveling through Paris as well. And both of those were feeling emptier than they have been in the past. Um, but yes, New York was 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 fairly hectic, um, and London London was heaving, which I couldn't believe at all. I was not expecting that at all.
1: Wow, well, that's great. I I, I was in the military, so I spent a couple of years in London. So definitely uh, love London. But um, going back to, I know we kind of got off track a little bit, but we were talking about remote working and all of that. But going back to what opportunities do you think are being missed from companies that are in need for cybersecurity teams? And I'm in complete agreement with you about the whole college degree, because, you know, I have a nephew that he tried to go to school for a couple of years. It just wasn't, it wasn't for him. And then he just couldn't figure out what he was going to do. He ended up going to a coding boot camp, and he is doing very, very well, you know, um, making over $100,000 a year. He's, you know, he's in his 20s, and, you know, he didn't need that. He's, he's thriving in his career, and that was without a college degree, you know. So I'm, you know, people... I've had this conversation a lot because I have many guests on here and I may have someone with a PhD that is begs to differ, you know, with what I say, but I think, you know, everything there, it's a pie and, you know, there's different pieces of the pie that you should be choosing from. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the things that often gets overlooked is that people have different ways of learning. And if you encourage people to learn in a way that suits them, it means you have people who think in different ways, which means that we end up with a very diverse workforce. And this is especially important in cybersecurity because the people attacking our companies or our infrastructure are not sitting there saying, okay, so I was taught to do this and this and this and this and this. They're they're creative. They're coming up with new ways to break things. They're chaining together attacks in new unusual ways. They're they're constantly trying to change how we accept things work and trying to, to sort of test all of those theories we have about, okay, if we build infrastructure like this, if we build an application over the top like that, it works like that and it's secure. If we have... A a, a team, a workforce of people who have gone down different routes of education, who have approached learning and gaining skills in different ways. By default, we've got a very diverse group of people, right? We have people who think differently. They're neurodiverse. There'll be people from different cultures, from different backgrounds, from economic groups. That then collectively means as a team, we're constantly surrounded by new ideas and new ways of thinking about stuff, which is absolutely the goal for any effective security team. You you absolutely want a highly diverse group of people who are thinking differently about what is established security doctrine. we've, we've, We've got all these organizations who've spent a lot of time building up standards, which is absolutely fantastic, but those standards are essentially the lowest common denominator. And implementing Secure standards is a good way of saying, okay, I'm I'm this secure, but it is like the, the foundation to you building your wonderful palace of security awesomeness on top of. If you don't have a diverse team, if you don't have people who have taken different routes to learning about things, if you don't have people who've stepped outside their comfort zone and said, well, you know what, I'm I'm not going to sit exams. I'm not going to go on a course for this. I need to, to find out for myself how this works. Pardon <coughs> me. You need that um, spread of uh, thought and different approaches on how to do stuff.
1: Yeah, I agree, you know, and, you know, there's a lot to say about mentoring and, you know, companies hiring, you know, anyone can hire an intern that they're not going to pay. Well, it's probably not going to attract that intern. You know, I think it's um, super valuable that you should be paying your interns because you don't know they may be the next leaders of your company. Um, We hire lots of interns and um, love interns because they're eager, willing to learn, just, you know, want to want to see what's going on. So so um, we have a yeah. Well, I was going to bring something else up, but um, we have a a friend of ours, he usually comes on the show, and uh, Jonathan Kimmett, he's the CISO at a university, and he has students there that he's building their SOC team with the students that are going through school. That's phenomenal. Mm. It'd be amazing if every CISO at every school would do something like that because now these kids are going to graduate college with experience already. And you know what? If something happens and they don't finish their degree, they still have the experience.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I, th- I think too too much training hinges on <clears throat> here is theoretical knowledge. Here's some hands-on knowledge. Here's an exam at the end of it. and And – if you don't pass the exam somehow that negates all of the knowledge that you gained up until then. Um, and lots of people for for a variety of reasons don't do well in exams. Um, I mean, I'm the opposite. I've, I've got a really great short term memory. I love exams because I just skim through the course material before and then walk in and then walk out really quickly. Um, I, I, I love those multiple choice certification exams because you can chew through those in 10 fifteen minutes um, nice and easy um,
1: well you're then, one yeah. of, you're one of the lucky ones not everyone <laughs> my son my son has that that you know photogenic mind but you know I was in the Navy and I am not a good test taker and mm. um, you you had to to Rank to go up on rank, you have to take a test. But it was it was really great when I was in the Navy because I kept taking that test. And and in the Navy, you know, they had you know maybe there could be five thousand people taking the test, and they were only going to rank two two people. So mm. my chances were never that great of ranking up, of you know, getting a higher rank. Well, I ended up getting, it was awesome. They ended up um, taking my rank up just because of my work ethic and how hard I worked. So I was able to get by not testing for that rank. And I was, you know, they would do this occasionally. And I think that's what our workforce should be doing as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, I was uh, talking to a uh, peer in financial services and, and she is terrible at taking tests. Um, and we were joking about it. It's like, well, if, if I find it really, really easy to photographically remember a bunch of knowledge and then pass a multi choice test, and you have deep, in depth knowledge and you can't pass the test, that's not a reflection on the skills or the expertise of either of us. That's just a reflection on the fact that testing is a bit rubbish. <laughs> it's, it's relying relying on a test as somehow being this great leveler is is not how it's it should be at all mm-hmm. one of the, the things i came across in consulting which has stuck with me is is this idea of a case based interview about when you're interviewing people give them a scenario give them most of the information they need to solve it and then give them a pen and a whiteboard or or give them uh, a microphone and say right how are you going to fix this problem talk us through it and it's a fantastic way to get people to demonstrate the knowledge that they have and their thought processes and how they think and again thinking about how we want to build a workforce of diverse people where we don't want clones who think and do things in the same way approaching testing knowledge and skills in that way is a fabulous way of Giving, giving confidence on the person being interviewed or actually taking, taking that test because they can really drill down into areas where they're strong and they can really demonstrate their expertise in a way that they're comfortable and confident in doing. And equally, at the people on the other side, if you're evaluating someone or if you're hiring them, it gives you a great idea about, okay, this is how this person thinks and here's how they approach problems and here's how they approach this particular situation. And it gives you a much better idea going back to what we we're talking about initially, how would they fit in with the culture of the organization? How would they fit in with you, how you do things? You know, is, is this, are they going to be a uh, a new and interesting way of looking at things? Or is their approach so outside of how uh, the rest of the team do things that there, there, there needs to be some learning and some growth there? So it's, it's, it's a great way, I'd, I, I would encourage more organizations and more companies when they're interviewing staff, and when they're interviewing staff, not just to hire, but also to promote and to uh, cross-promote with organizations, to move away from that sort of question and answer, do you know this, do you not know it? Because we all know how to Google, and we've all got portable supercomputers with constant internet connectivity in our pockets, right? It's, It's that I've memorized everything is less useful now than it has been in the past but instead talking to people and giving them a situation and helping them demonstrate their expertise and demonstrate how they can think through things that is a way of, of empowering people and and helping people who may not have the academic background or the experience behind them i hired someone uh last year who had not worked in the cybersecurity industry at all. They'd they'd had no experience there whatsoever. But during the interview, the way they solved problems, the way they could talk through the case, the way they could explain their thinking, was, was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And it was clear that here is someone who was absolutely perfect for the cybersecurity role that was being hired for, even if they didn't have the qualifications and the certifications that other similar roles were asking for. And they've, they've been amazing. They've been absolutely amazing. They've come in, in leaps and bounds. They've done a fantastic job. Um, they've dealt with some very, very tricky situations over the last year. And if if the approach had been to look for certifications, test passes, qualifications, that person would never have got the job. And I would have missed out. And, and RDX Works the company I'm working for would have missed out massively as well. And they would have missed out as well. You know, they'd have missed out on a good job, uh, joining a good team, and uh, pursuing something that they were really, really interested in, but they were struggling to prove to other people they're interested
1: in. So how do you go about that? We're we're coming up, we only have a we probably have four or five minutes. Um, but when you are interviewing and you're you have a candidate, do you think that is how do you do you give them scenarios of problem solving, and what kind of what kind of can you give us an example of what that would look like?
2: Yes, so so I give all candidates before they attend the interview a little cheat sheet that essentially summarizes you know, this this uh, the, the, the star model, which is fairly common in consulting. You know, situation, task, action, response. This is what we're looking for. So when you're being asked questions, this is how you want to frame it. Uh, and also a cheat sheet that goes through. Okay, this is this is critical thinking. These are what critical thinking skills are. This is what's important in the job. And then they they, they get a chance to read through that. They get a chance to understand it. They can ask some questions before the interview if they want. And then during the interview, I'm I'm looking for people to engage in that level. I'm looking for people to use that staff framework to structure their answers, uh, to structure how they're approaching problems. Um, and there's there's I do very little of the question and answer. Do you know this? Do you know that? There'll be a bit of it because there always is. You always need to. Oh, you say you got ten years of dealing with Solaris. Do you? Do you? Do you really know Solaris? Let's just double check that. But most of it's taken up by 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 the the the, the case study or the scenario, which is is literally. I will talk them through very quickly, five ten minutes. Here's a situation. This is what's going on. This is what's being asked. Uh, this is what the results need to be. This is what's happening. Talk me through how you would approach this. Um, and it's it's a great way of doing it because there's no right or wrong answers, right? This is, this is giving someone a chance to go through and say, okay, given this, here's how I would approach it. Given this, here's how I would tackle this situation. And also gives you flexibility. You know, if there's an area where someone is struggling a bit, you can either focus on that or you can back away. If there's an area where someone is, is clearly very confident in their skills and abilities, you can then focus on that and say, right, okay, well, if you're using this technology to solve this problem, how will you configure it? What would you do if this happened? How would you deal with this security issue? It's also a good way of of talking people through what we face on a daily basis, which is here's what we thought was happening And now we've discovered that actually something completely different is happening and we're focused on the wrong problem and there's a really big problem over here that we need to fix. Uh, That that happens all the time and it is where I find a lot of people who have not got that root cause analysis, that problem solving approach, really Mm -hmm. struggling the job because they're expecting... A, B, C, D, a very linear sort of approach to problem solving. We've got tools. They give us output. We take the output. We then apply a patch or solve the problem. And and having a scenario-based approach to interviewing people gives them a good idea that this is what the job is like, right? And we, we assume, based on alerts and based on observations, that this is what's happening. And then we get some more data and we find out there it's something completely different. And we have to scramble to fix it. It also gives the interviewer the ability to evaluate, you know, how, how do they cope with the stress of dealing with that? How do they cope with the change in requirements? How do they cope with, we wanted this output, but now we need that output? Um, it is a very effective way, I think, of judging uh, both on both sides, because there's a two-way process. You know, it gives gives the candidate the ability to say, is, is this the sort of thing that I really want to be doing every day? And it gives the interviewer the ability to say, okay, this, this, this person is, is, is good. They've got the right idea or they're a bit weak in this area, which immediately means that we are then able to bring them into the role. And we've immediately got a path for growing and mentoring and supporting them to, to, to tackle those areas that the interview showed that they needed help and support him.
1: There's so many other questions I'd love to ask you, but we're down to like a minute and a half, but you know, problem solving can't be taught. That is something that is learned. So if that person comes in again, that's just a fine line, you know, do you let that person not have the job, you know, but um, my tech team is starting to give me the one minute uh, countdown. Love to have you on this show again. It's been super interesting. Uh Tom Kranz, who is the head of cybersecurity with uh, RDX Works. Um, You can find him on LinkedIn, or you can go see him in Italy. I'd love to go do that. So uh, thanks for being here, Tom, and um, we hope to have you back again. Thanks for spending the last uh, hour with us. Thank you, everyone that is out there. We will not have a show next week uh, because of Thanksgiving, so I wish you all the best Thanksgiving. I hope you can enjoy time with your family and your friends and Relax and have some um, downtime and enjoy the holiday. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe, stay secure, and we'll see you in two weeks.
0: Thank you for tuning into and Security for All. Be sure to join your host Kim Hagem for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim H-A-K-I-M to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events.